Well, hello, and uh, welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, live from Maui, Hawaii. My name is Michael Benner. Pleasure to be with you today. And uh, actually, to be with you every Sunday uh, at uh, 1 o'clock West Coast time, 4 o'clock in the East. It's uh, a little after 10 a.m. in Maui. And uh, I'm happy to be with you here today. I've got a big full cup of coffee that I can't really drink. <laughs> but every once in a while I may pause for a little sip, if that's okay with you. Uh, I'm going to uh, be traveling a little bit in the next week. So I'll probably be coming to you a week from today from southwestern Michigan. But that won't change for you guys. Everything for you will be the same, and you'll continue to get your newsletter, and uh, the webinar will be at the same time. You don't have to do anything. It's one of the pleasures of the Internet is wherever I go, if I take my laptop, uh, we can do this thing. So we'll see how that works. I've only uh, done this webinar in the last year one other time from a location other than my home, and it went pretty well, so we'll do that again next week. All right, our topic for the day today is the roots of fear, the basics, going back to the basics to talk about what scares the bejesus out of us, and I'm not just talking about big, overwhelming, extraordinary fear. I'm going to talk about fear and all of its permutations, and and combinations, even a little bit of nervousness, is anxiety. Um, so whether it's, you know, I'm not afraid, I just have my concerns, I'm rather uneasy, I'm a little bit nervous about it, all the way to I'm terrified, I'm paralyzed, I'm gutted, I don't know what to do, and everything in between we're going to talk about today. And hopefully... Well, I will, without without doubt, give you some tools and some skill sets for managing this fear and anxiety in your life. And I guess what I was about to say is, hopefully, uh, you'll practice those skills. You know, there is such a thing as being addicted to fear. It's uh, the fact that fear and excitement feel so similar in the body that fear can be exciting. I mean, fear is oh no and can hold you back, feel like a weight uh, on your shoulders or somebody sitting on your chest. Uh, and excitement can certainly motivate you, feels like a wind at your back. And, and so in one sense, oh no, fear and oh boy, excitement uh, are as opposite as could be. And yet, the irony is they feel very similar in the body. And so, it's easy to get confused and call your fear excitement and get addicted, literally addicted to the adrenaline rush and to the feeling that you're doing a lot of work and you're getting a lot done and you're really accomplishing things and fear is your friend in this way. And somebody once pointed out to me that that kind of a belief system is sort of like sitting in a rocking chair 
rocking back and forth for an hour or two and then standing up thinking you got somewhere. You know, you burned some calories, you did a lot of work, but when you stood up, you were found yourself right where you were when you sat down. You didn't really make any progress. So that's the problem with experiencing fear as excitement and not really doing anything about it, just wanting more fear and looking for more anxiety and even cultivating the confusion at the roots of fear uh, to get that adrenaline rush because it feels exciting. Well, watch for that. Just as we often say, moving away from what you do not want is not a goal. You might say, well, I'm moving. I'm getting away from what I don't want. You know, well, that may be true, but are you moving toward what you do want? To, to avoid what you don't want is not a goal. So we have that same kind of dynamic here between fear and excitement. So they do feel the same in the body. You know, weak knees, is that fear or excitement? Uh, girded loins, um, butterflies in your tummy, uh, heart palpitations, a lump in your throat, uh, a trembling upper lip, maybe sweaty palms, dilated pupils. Are these symptoms of fear? Yes. Are they symptoms of excitement? Yes. Then how do we know the difference between oh no and oh boy? Holding on is fear. Holding on to those feelings. Holding on in response to those feelings makes the anxiety a negative, fear-based anxiety. To take a breath and let go and step into your anxiety turns it into enthusiasm, high levels of expectation, hope, and this is the oh boy of excitement. So, yeah, fear and excitement are two sides of the same coin, they feel similarly in the body, but if you hold on to those feelings, you'll experience them as fear, and they will hold you back. And if you take a breath and ah, as you exhale, consciously let go of those very same feelings, the weak knees, the girded loins, the butterflies in the tummy, the heart palpitations, the lump in the throat, <laughs> the, the dilated pupils and, and the sweaty palms. If you take a breath and let go in response to those feelings, you will perceive them as excitement and enthusiasm, and they will motivate you to move forward in your life. So I think that's the first point that I want to make in our class today on the roots of fear. And the second is really not to be confused by the many, many terms that we have to avoid saying the word fear. You know, fear is a frightening word. Remember, it was uh, Franklin Roosevelt, FDR, who said, long before our time, but nevertheless, we've heard it said many times, Roosevelt's inauguration speech, or maybe it was his uh, address after Pearl Harbor that 
the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. That 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 is a very profound concept. That the problem with fear is when it's not managed, it doubles down, and fear can be paralyzing. And it's a frightening word. It's a frightening concept. So we have a lot of other words for it. I've already used several. One is anxiety. Anxiety is a funny word in that it can mean either the oh boy or the oh no that I just finished discussing. Um, <clears throat> if you say, well, I have to, uh, I don't know, I have to pick up my father at the airport and I'm really anxious about it. Well, is that anxious as in I can hardly wait? Oh boy, I haven't seen him in a long time. It's going to be wonderful. I'm really anxious to see him. Or is it a negative? Oh, no, I have so much anxiety. I'm really anxious about having to meet this guy. I've never liked my father. I don't think he likes me. I'm not looking forward to picking him up at the airport, and I'm really anxious. Isn't that an interesting word, that anxiety can be either an oh boy or a oh no. It can be either a motivating force, anxiety, or it can hold you back. But other words are more specific in other synonyms for fear, for example. Um, I think stress is a, a very good uh, second example. Even stress does have a benefit. There is something called eustress. This is an important concept, um, more than a word. Eustress is spelled E. U and the word stress. E U S T R E S S. U stress. And what it means is a good kind of a stress. This is who remembers the baseball player Reggie Jackson? He was Mr. October. And when the pennant race was on, and if the Yankees were in the World Series, Reggie Jackson would rise to the occasion and play better than he'd ever played before. He was uh, using eustress, right, to improve his game when it really mattered. Um, then there's A-Rod, who, you know, when the pressure is on, the dependent race tends to crumble. A lot of amateur athletes have this problem. As long as there's no money on the game or the outcome is not um, all that significant, it's not important, you're just playing for fun, you play a great game. And then when the pressure is on for any reason, um, it's a tournament. Again, this, again, could be any kind of performance. I'm thinking of, of sports now, but it could be academic performance or performance at work or communication skills with your spouse and kids and parents at home. Uh, the other side of stress is distress. So just like anxiety can go both ways, stress could be you stress, good stress, helps you to do better, or distress, distressful, um, bad stress, another word for fear, and uh, actually degrade or impair your performance. Again, it's, it's not the fear or the stress so much as what you do with the fear or the stress. 
uh, like so many other things. You know, it's not what you think. It's are you agreeing with these thoughts, positive thoughts, negative thoughts, confusion? We are not our thoughts. We are the part that agrees or disagrees or gets even further confused with the thought, a concept we'll talk about a lot, continue to talk about a lot. Uh, life is what you make it, an incredibly profound concept that the vast majority of people in your life will never, ever understand. If you understand that life is more about what you do with it than what's done to you, you join a very small group of somewhat enlightened people. You cannot control most of what's done to you. That's part of where our fear comes from. But we can choose how we look at it and how we respond. And hopefully you're not tired of hearing me say that because that would indicate you already knew it and never forget. Well, I forget, so I'll bet you forget sometimes. And it's a drum I'm going to continue to beat, even if only to encourage you to Educate your friends and your family and in gentle and supportive and loving ways. Make sure they understand that you, you don't have to do what 99% of people do, which is struggle against circumstances. You can take responsibility and find control in your perception and response to those circumstances. A little more on that later in the hour because that's really one of the ways of managing fear and stress and anxiety that we want to talk about. So those are the big three. I think fear has two synonyms, stress and anxiety, in the most um, primary way. And I like those because both stress in terms of eustress and distress and the word anxiety itself can speak either to fear or excitement, to oh no, or, oh boy. But there are many other words for fear, uh, words we use to soften it, uh, to mitigate it, uh, to pretend it doesn't have a grip on us, or more to the point that we're holding on to the fear. We can call it nervousness. We can call it by some sort of mental process, worry. We can call it apprehension. Um, there's... There are so many terms for it, uh, the cold sweats and the heebie-jeebies. Uh, these are all synonyms, really, other ways of saying, I am afraid, without experiencing the fear of saying, I'm afraid. Right? Uh, the fear that, what will others think if they know I'm afraid? I'm afraid to be afraid. I'm afraid that they will know that I'm afraid, and I'm afraid of that, and you can see the conundrum here, the vicious cycle, and the catch-22. I think the next thing I want to touch on as we talk about the roots of fear is the way in which the conscious mind confuses fear and confusion itself. Um, I'm sorry, uh, the confusion that comes from fear leads to fear, the way that gets confused with danger. That's what I want to say. The fear of danger is one thing, but 
you know, we're pretty safe. If you think about it, we're not really in all that much danger. Uh, let me get a sip of my coffee here. We're really not. I mean, Bush and Cheney spent a lot of time trying to scare us as a justification for war so they could accomplish a number of things. Uh, not only the the uh, the oil in Iraq, but the uh, whole issue of logistics and having bases, permanent bases in Iraq. Um, in many ways, Bush and Cheney succeeded. They got the chaos and the military presence and the oil. Uh, they divided Iraq. They started a civil war. Uh, many not-so-cynical people say this was their intention all along, and from the Bush-Cheney point of view, they succeeded in Iraq. They got exactly what they wanted. Well, I bring it up because the whole idea of a war on terror is really uh, a contradiction in terms, isn't it? Uh, to out to to, to Declare a war on terror is to declare a war on war, uh, to be so terrible that we could eliminate terror. We're going to terrorize and torture people to eliminate terror and torture in the world. We're going. It's like eliminating hatred with hatred. I hate the fact that you hate me, right? This is the kind of jobberwocky or doublespeak or Wellian doublespeak that the Bush administration, frankly, was really, really good at and that we have to look for in all administrations. Um, I don't think the Obama administration is above this at all, especially if you look at the way in which he's been pressured to put in the financial part of his administration a lot of the same people, um, Larry Summers and Tim Geithner and I don't, I'm not going to get off on a tangent here, but um, Barack is not choosing all of these people. The Fed and the banking system is still being run by a shadow government. Barack has spoken to that shadow government, and the Prime Minister of uh, the United Kingdom of England, Gordon Brown, has also referred to the shadow banking system. It's not the banks we need to nationalize, it's the Fed we need to get control of the money. But until then, fear has been and will to varying degrees continue to be used by anybody in government, in corporations, somebody in your own life that is using fear as a tool of manipulation to frighten you. So to fight terror with terror, to fight fear with fear or hatred with fear might make sense on the surface, like we're the good torturers, we're the good bombers. We're, yeah, all these, you know, at least 100,000 Iraqis have died. Some say uh, a million Iraqis have died, but by conservative estimates, 100,000 Iraqi civilians have died, 4,000 American soldiers have died, tens of thousands have been maimed, in an attempt to capture one guy and his two sons. And we did that. And 
obviously it was a subterfuge. War against war, or a global war on terror, is a euphemism for perpetual war and perpetual fear. That's what we're talking about. That's the only reason I even bring it up in the context. You might think that was a little political rant. It's not really. It's an, it's an example of the way fear can be used by others in your life to control and manipulate you, to frighten you. And any time somebody tries to frighten you, I don't care who they are, beware. A red flag should just pop up, right? It's like a, uh, a red light on the dashboard of life that says, hold on, somebody is trying to frighten me here. And if I allow myself to become fearful, stressed or anxious or nervous or worried or apprehensive or whatever word, well, I have my concerns, whatever word you use for it, if we react to fear without the conscious, even-tempered, well-reasoned responses we're going to talk about today as an alternative, if we merely react, knee-jerk, reflexively to fear, then we're going to be easily manipulated. What we have to do is determine, anytime we're presented with fear, anxiety, or stress, whether this is about danger or whether it's just confusion. Okay, That's the very first response to fear in your life. It could just be a little bit of fear, and so you don't call it fear. You just say, well, I have my concerns, or I'm a little nervous or apprehensive, but I'm not afraid. Well, okay, call it what you will. You, your, your very first step, you may even want to write this down if you're a note taker. Your very first step is to decide, to discern for yourself, is this fear, this feeling of anxiety, this stress and nervousness about real, clear and present danger? Or is it confusion? Because 99% of the time, it's going to be the latter. You're not in that much danger. I, I know. I mean, what happened to the to the Homeland Security warnings, yellow becomes orange just before an election. Oh, how quaint. Suddenly we just do away with all of that, right? The idea of the government frightening you, um, the Republicans in this case, using fear so that you'll vote for them, right? The meanest, most terrible, they're more terrible and more frightening than the Democrats, so they'll make you safe. That was a scam that worked for a long time and is very appealing to people. Hitler did the same thing. And they will lie and they will cheat. And it's in the nature of a politician to lie and to use fear to actually anybody that's trying to. It could be your boss. It could be somebody you're married to. It could be your kids or your parents that are using fear and intimidation to try to control you, to manipulate you, to to exact a particular form of behavior that you then play into their hands. Okay, 
So always beware of those who are trying to frighten you, right? I don't mean to to use such a broad brush that any negativity and any note of caution is going to come from somebody out to manipulate you. There are those (laughs) individuals in your life and those circumstances where they're just trying to give you a little heads up and tell you to be careful. I don't want to overstate this. But so much of human relations is still about manipulation and control and trying to manage other people instead of managing your perception and response that fear is a is a calculated tool that is used by many people in business and in government and in other areas of our life as well. Always beware of the fear. And then ask yourself at the very beginning, is this fear real, clear, and present danger? Because if it's not, if I'm worried about the past, something that happened that frightens me in the past because I'm not sure it's over or I think it might happen again or you're just projecting out into the future. That's where the fear lies is past regrets and resentments and future maybes and what ifs. The fear is not real. In the now, we drag it into the moment in most cases but 99% of the time, 99.999, virtually all the time, you're safe. Right now, in the moment, take a breath, exhale, and say, what am I really afraid of here? Well, I'm afraid something that happened in the past is going to happen in the future. Well, that's nice, but it's not real. Right now, you're safe. And the, ple- the, the best place to learn from the past and to plan the future is from that realization that right now, in this moment, you're very, very safe. That will allow you the mental focus, all right? the, the concentration, the expanded awareness, feeling safe and relaxed to make that very first distinction is this fear about real clear and present danger or is it just confusion well the vast majority of the time you get my point the vast majority of the time the fear is simply going to be confusion and the next part of this is to know that what confuses you that ignorance or lack of information or, or, or lack of awareness or understanding that is fueling this anxiety and fear and stress and worry and doubt and nervousness and apprehension is about you. In other words, let's bottom line what we've said so far. Except for the exceedingly rare instance of clear and present danger real danger to life and limb. You or somebody close to you that you care about and love. Except for the exceedingly rare instances of real, clear, and present danger, all of your fear is about what you don't know. 
and at the center of all things unknown is you. If you write that down, and I suggest you do, because the ego does not want to remember that. The ego does not want to feel safe and relaxed. The ego wants fear. That's its job, is to keep you safe from fear. If or aware of fear, rather, so so that if you feel safe from fear, the ego has no job, right? It it ceases to be when you're safe, or, you know, that's sort of the programming that's going on. So you have a co-conspirator inside your own head that says, you better be afraid. In fact, well, this is this is where it gets difficult to explain, but stay with me on this, because I've given this a lot of thought. My whole life is dedicated to this. What what is going on when we believe, when we agree with the thought that occurs to us countless times in our lives that the best way to respond to fear is to double down. On the fear that the best way to be safe in the world is to counsel fear and if I'm perpetually frightened if I'm always on guard and always looking out if I'm perpetually afraid that will help me feel safe because if I allowed myself to feel safe well some danger could sneak up on me And I'm afraid to feel safe, so the way to feel safe is to be fearful. Now, that's an operational definition of crazy, except that we're talking about virtually everybody in the world who is using their fear, embracing their fear, conjuring up and holding on to fear as if it were a way to be safe. But to allow themselves to actually feel safe and relaxed, oh, that's way too frightening. This is why many people refuse to meditate. They refuse to close their eyes, take a breath, and relax. And they say, well, my mind just won't stop chattering. I can't meditate. Well, as I often say, you don't need to quiet the mind or calm the emotions to meditate. You meditate to quiet the mind and calm the emotion. Let's get the pony in front of the cart here. All right. But the fear is that I'll stop being afraid. It's just crazy. And, yes, you can dedicate your life to this. In fact, what whether you do it as a profession or just as a form of self-improvement, what more basic approach is there? to better managing your life than to sort out this tangled mess. Fear does not help you feel safe, and feeling safe is not going to frighten you. It's a lie. It's the big lie. And there are those who seek to manipulate you, who will promote this lie, but your ego is on board. Your ego is agreeing. Yeah, they're right. The best way to ensure your safety is to always be afraid. Remember uh, in the Reagan era, uh, 
he, he talked about wanting the Russians to be afraid of the United States. Reagan was talking about, in a quite insane way, a limited nuclear war. I don't know if you remember the 80s. If you go back that far, if you're old enough to remember, but there was a lot of talk about small nuclear weapons, neutron bombs, enhanced radiation devices that would kill the people but leave the buildings standing. I'm serious. We we put billions of your tax dollars into building nuclear weapons that were easier to use. And Reagan says, I want them to be frightened. We're going to fight a limited nuclear war. It'll probably happen in Europe. You can imagine what the Europeans thought of that. And I want the the Soviets, the people of the, of the Soviet Union, and in particular their leadership, to always be frightened that at any minute we could launch an attack. My friends, that's insane. That's part of the insanity of the Reagan administration that to some degree continued with Bush 41 and then was put on steroids for W. Bush 43. The whole idea of if we start a war and a war on terror and we become terrible in response to fighting the war on terror and we become the ones that torture and render and throw out uh, habeas corpus and spy on all Americans, well, instead of being thought of as the president, I'll be the commander-in-chief and I can do anything I want. That was the plan all along. And there are documents that exist from before Bush was elected that make it clear that that was their intention all along. Hitler did the same thing. Stalin did the same thing. Mao did the same thing. These tin pot dictators all over the world and third world areas in South America and Africa do exactly the same thing. They rule by fear. A reign of terror, right, is not a way to fight terror. Fear is not a way to respond to fear. To be afraid of fear is a real conundrum. So if you counsel fear, it's not going to make you feel safe. It's going to make you feel more afraid. And the only way to feel safe is to work on feeling safe, to let go of the fear. Fear is holding on. Feeling safe is a letting go feeling. And we need to practice that, especially as we come to understand what an extremely small exception the fear of danger is, and that, in fact, the vast majority of our fear is a response to confusion. It's things unknown, fear of the unknown. And at the center of all things unknown is you. What you're afraid of is you. Drum roll, trumpet fanfare, you're terrified. And I don't know you. I mean, I might in a minute. I'll go to the submission page here where you're hopefully typing in your questions and your comments and then I might see a first name or a first and last name in the city. Maybe I do know you, but there's lots of people on here I don't know, have never met, and yet I can generalize about that. 
about the fact that with the, you know, I'll admit, there is such a thing as danger out there. There's just not that much. And most of what's dangerous, we've imposed. We're, <laughs> we're the dangerous animal. You know, years ago, a friend of mine wanted to go backpacking. When I lived in Los Angeles, I said, I'll take you backpack, and we can go up into these local foothills. And he said, that'd be great, but I don't have any gear. I said, that's okay, I'll get the gear for you. I'll, I'll get you a sleeping bag, and, and I'll get you uh, a backpack and everything that you need, and I'll take you up in the woods, and we'll go walking and have a good time. Well, the day of the uh, the day that we're set to go out, he shows up, and I've got all the gear laid out on the garage floor, the the tent and the and the backpacks and the sleeping bags and the and the propane stove or the little liquid gas stove that we used to use and the cooking equipment and all of that. And he looks around. My friend looks around, and he says, "Well, where are the guns?" I said, "What do you mean the guns? What do you mean where are the? We're not going hunting. We're going backpacking." He said, "Yeah, but aren't there wild?" Aren't there wild animals up there in the woods? Aren't there mountain lions? I said, well, yeah, there's mountain lions up there. He said, well, aren't there bears? I said, yeah, actually there are some brown bears, you know. Some of them are black in color, but that's the California brown bear. They're not grizzly bears, but, you know, there are bears up there. He says, well, aren't there rattlesnakes up there? I said, yeah, there's certainly some rattlesnakes, but, you know, if you leave them alone, they'll leave you alone. He says, I don't know, I think we might need a gun. I said, no, man, trust me, no guns, we're backpacking. <laughs> and then it occurred to me, and I remember this, it must have been 30 years ago, and I'll, I'll always remember this. It just popped into my head, and I found myself saying to my friend, the most dangerous animal you'll encounter in the woods is a human being. Human beings, other people. And the irony is whatever danger we pose to each other is dwarfed by the danger that we present to ourselves. Because a fear and the things unknown that lead to fear, I'm saying, except for the extreme exception of danger, 99 plus percent of our fear is things unknown. Well, that's a vicious cycle. So whatever you don't know about yourself, that's going to generate fear. But the other side of the vicious cycle is that fear, anxiety, and stress tends to promote confusion because we look outside of ourselves for the danger. When it's not danger and it's not outside, it's inside, and it's confusion. And so now the fear has frightened you and added to your confusion, which creates more fear and anxiety. And that creates more confusion and more anxiety and more confusion and more anxiety and more confusion. Or, even though fear is a scary word and ignorance is a rather insulting word, 
let's call anxiety and confusion what it really is. It's a vicious cycle of fear and ignorance, and we're all trapped in it for most of our lives. What we don't know about life frightens us, which compounds our confusion, which compounds our fear, and makes us even more ignorant, more afraid, more ignorant, more afraid. And the only way to break out of that is to say, I am safe. To look around and say, right now, right here, as I breathe, as I exhale, as I relax, I am safe, number one. I have choices. I am safe. I have choices. And my fear, my anxiety, my stress, my apprehension of worry and doubt and nervousness is about what I don't know, not about any real danger. It's about what I don't know. And at the center of that is me. I don't know me. I don't understand who I am. I don't understand why I think the way I think. I don't understand my emotional feelings. Nobody ever showed me anything about how to understand, interpret, discern, much less manage my emotions or my thoughts, for that matter. You get some training in school on how to think. Not very much, but a little bit. And virtually nothing on how to feel. So we don't understand our thoughts, we don't really understand our feelings, we don't understand often why we say the things we say and why we do the things that we do. (coughs) And yet who's interested in understanding themselves that well? The basic response or reaction, better said, of a frightened nervous, anxious, stressed out person is to judge other people and to judge circumstances and events around you. It's counterintuitive to want to know yourself. And yet, what do the ancient Greeks, what have the ancient Greeks always said? You know, what is that old admonition that, according to Plato, was inscribed over the oracle to Apollo at Delphi in ancient Greece. It was know thyself. And uh, we mentioned also a couple of weeks ago um, the admonition from Shakespeare, from Hamlet, where the father is telling his son advice because he's about to go to the big city for the first time and of all the advice he's given the father says and this above all this above all to thine own self be true this is not only found in the west this information is found in the east Lao Tzu uh, the sage that compiled the Tao Te Ching a, a, a book of Chinese folk wisdom not really a religion common sense, a lot like Confucianism, also Chinese. Lao Tzu said, one who knows others is wise, but when you know yourself, that's enlightenment. Right? He who knows others is wise, 
but to know yourself, that's enlightenment. Who is telling us this? Not too many people in our lives are saying, know thyself. And yet nothing could be more important. I like to say it this way. If you don't know yourself, discover and develop why you think, act, and speak, and feel the way you do, who's going to do that? Self-discovery and personal development, self-development is not a job you can delegate to other people. So if you don't understand yourself, yourself never gets understood. And yet most people don't want to do it because it's too scary. It's too frightening. I think a lot of us are just afraid that our parents will be right. They were the most critical for most of us. Our parents were the most critical people. And even if they weren't, even if we had saint-like parents, there was somebody in your life, a, a teacher, maybe a stranger, uh, a, a, a kid you hung out with, a bully up the block. Um, there's always somebody who's going to hurt you and frighten you and bully you and make you feel bad about yourself. And we then take on the role of agreeing with that criticism. We become critical of ourselves, using our thoughts to judge and criticize, to beat ourselves up. The nature of logic is to tear down, to take apart. It's deductive logic. So you're going to try to know yourself with your mind, with your mental nature. You're just going to be critical and judgmental and add your voice to the chorus of people that are trying to bring you down, control you, manipulate you, and generally convince you that you're not very good at this, and you're not very smart, and you don't really deserve it, and you'd screw it up sooner or later, and those fears of inadequacy are self-imposed. We either originated them, or we agreed with the propaganda in our sphere of influence. We agreed with the lie that you're just not good enough. What a shame. I think I was in my early 30s before it occurred to me that self-esteem could not come from other people. That my self-image and my self-esteem and my self-confidence had to come from me. Nobody ever told me that. I never read it in a book. I think I was sitting in a coffee shop one day, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I'd been putting my whole life up for a vote. Like the former mayor of New York City, Ed Koch, he had this slogan, this catchphrase he would use, How am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? Well, for a politician looking for votes, maybe that's an appropriate question. But... I came to a point where I realized that's the wrong question. Or maybe the right question, but asked of the wrong person. I should be asking myself, how, how am I doing? Or more to the point, who am I? Who am I? Who is this self? 
Eckhart Tolle says in the very first chapter, the very beginning of his of his book, The Power of Now, that he woke up in the middle of the night exceedingly depressed and said to himself, I hate myself like this. I think we've often said that. I hate myself. You stand in front of a mirror. Oh, I just hate the way I look in this. Or I hate my hair. Or I hate my face. I need a nose job. I need a an eye tuck. I need my chin lifted. I need to change my appearance. Or This does not help. Right? To say I hate myself is to say you don't know yourself and this is where the psychological becomes metaphysical and spiritual the true self is so glorious yeah you and I can say that at random to every individual on this earth no matter how evil or nefarious they may be that doesn't mean they're evil people it means they think they need to act that way. In fact, everybody is wonderful, magnificent, brilliant, loving, compassionate, but don't know it yet. We haven't evolved as a species yet to the point where we know that's our job. How can I get from other people self-esteem, self-confidence, a healthy self-image, Self-respect, self-trust, self-love, those words all begin with self. (laughs) At some point, I'm sure you have also had a similar experience and realized, well, self-esteem, that's my job. And if I'm going to have confidence in myself, I can't get that from other people. No matter how many of them say, I believe in you, you should believe in you, you're the ultimate arbitrator, you're the one that's going to have to at some point say, yeah, okay, I, I accept that I'm deserving and worthy of respect and trust and love, and I do have confidence in myself, I mean, if not you, who? It's one of the great conundrums of this whole concept of fear, anxiety, and and stress. Well, there's much more along these lines, but I'm going to, at this point, nearly an hour into the program, go to your comments and your questions. So, And then we'll do a quick little visualization exercise today on the nature of fear and how to manage it, what to do in response to this fear and anxiety. We'll develop a little further these ideas I've talked about here today, what are we going to do? So if you'll use the board in front of you, if you're listening live, today's March 15th, 2009. And if you're with us live on the web, the phone callers I have to mute out, but if you're live on the web with us, you can use the box at the bottom of the page and uh, just say hi. Let us know that you're here. Ask any question or comment that you may have. Most people don't do this, but it's always nice to hear from you, whether you're a a regular or somebody new to the call. And just put a question or comment in there. Follow it with your name and the city where you are, 
and be sure to hit the submit button, and I'll read some of these for you before our visualization exercise. Nice turnout today, by the way. I appreciate you all being here. First of all, uh, this is the order in which they've come in. Brian in Lancaster. Hello, Brian. Says, uh, hi, Michael. Sorry I missed today's ambassador conference call. Uh, circumstances beyond my control. Keeping the faith. Aloha and mahalo, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate that. The um, ambassador's conference call is something that I'm doing with a small group of really committed, dedicated listeners, uh, people that are hardcore fans of personal and spiritual development and empowerment who want to help us promote both these webinars, these classes, and also the premium audio programs at FocusedPassion.com. And uh, we meet on conference call. Sometimes there's just three or four of us. Sometimes there's eight or ten of us. Um, as people come through, uh, they may attend a half a dozen of these and then feel they don't need to continue to come. So I'm always growing that group and inviting new people. And Brian said he was not able to make it today, but it gives me reason to mention this to you. If uh, you'd like to join us on this ambassador conference call an hour before the Sunday webinar, let me know. Shoot me an email, and uh, I'll set you up, tell you how you can help in spreading the word and promoting the good news, especially with the Internet, social networking and such blogging and Twittering and forwarding programs and putting links in your email. and Oh, I can't tell you how helpful and beneficial that is to get these programs into the computers and the iPods, these audio programs, because you can't really tell people about Michael Benner's webinar and what Michael Benner has been about on the radio in Los Angeles for 35 years. It's hard to explain this stuff to other people. you got to just say, well, I can't really tell you much about them. you got to hear this webinar, this class, though, and send them a link. Um, forward the newsletter, something like that. So anyway, if you want to be part of the ambassador committee and join us in a private conference call about an hour before the webinar on Sundays, uh, shoot me an email. Let me know. MB, my initials, MB at theagelesswisdom.com. Remember the T-H-E. It's M-B at theagelesswisdom.com. And uh, I'll get back to you and set you up on that. appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. We missed you, but that's cool. I understand how it goes. In Los Angeles, Jung calls in, or writes, uh, Hi, Michael. Uh, it's been about 25 years since I heard you the last time. I used to listen to you on KLOS. Nice to hear you again. Well, thank you. And I don't know how you found us on the web, maybe by an email or a Google search, but very nice to hear from you and to know that you're back on board with personal and spiritual development. These are very different times than the 80s when I was on KLOS and Reagan was the president and so many of the things that we talked about 
are now happening in the world, coming forward and presenting themselves. Very exciting time to be alive. And Irvine, Robert is with us. He says, a couple of years ago, when I started listening to your program on KPFK, I came to realize that any philosophy based on fear is something to run away from, especially if it comes from a politician or some religious authority, in quotes. As you've said, fear is based on ignorance and confusion, whereas love leads to the truth. Spot on, Robert, and I'm glad you mentioned the the other spiral. If fear and ignorance, anxiety and confusion is a vicious cycle that pulls us down, then the upward spiral, the antidote, is peace of mind, love, and understanding. And don't they feed each other? As you become more loving and safer and more relaxed, you get smarter and more likely to understand the world around you and even more importantly, ever more likely to understand the world within you, in your mind and in your heart. And Who am I really? And that understanding then cycles around and leads to more peace, more love, more safety, and still more understanding. And so you have a vicious cycle of fear and ignorance that pulls you down, but you can transition, you can change that to an upward spiral of love and understanding. And the way to do it is relaxation and responsibility. To meditate, to relax, to open your mind and expand your awareness, open your heart with meditation, contemplation, introspection, whatever your process, and the awareness that comes from that then creates an upward spiral, allowing you to take ever more responsibility for your life, to see the powers in your perception and response. That's why we call it responsibility. There's a lot of confusion about this in the world right now because the right wing, politically, let's go back to that just for a moment, has attempted to define self-reliance and personal responsibility as a conservative value that leads to everybody being on their own with no sense of community and no responsibility to be your brother's keeper. That's an extreme ideological falsehood. It's not true. Personal responsibility and self-reliance <coughs> excuse me. In the biggest sense, personal responsibility, in the most complete and accurate sense, personal responsibility and self-reliance. And even the idea in free enterprise to profit and to gain according to your investment of time and effort implies a responsibility to your neighbor as well, a sense of community. And there has to be a balance between the two. For those of you who are just discovering Ayn Rand and the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged and the virtuous selfishness, please understand, please understand you have to put 
the merits of self-reliance into the larger context. It, 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 if it's not, it just becomes selfish. You know, self-reliance is not selfish. And that's what the right wing is attempted to do. Self-reliance and personal responsibility carries with it a responsibility to help your neighbor. Not to create a welfare state so that, you know, freeloaders can benefit from your good work, but to lend a helping hand. And that quality of self, as you develop your sense of self, it becomes a more inclusive self. Not, I, I, it really irritates me. This is one of my pet peeves. When I hear the right wing manipulating people and saying, oh no, personal responsibility means you only care about yourself and everybody else is on their own. So an ethic of personal responsibility means Katrina comes ashore, wipes out New Orleans, sorry, you're on, you're on your own. That's self-reliance. I'm sorry, that, that's wrong. <laughs> it's twisted, so twisted. In Los Angeles, uh, Young again says, I want to be free of ego. Instead, how can I know or experience my spirit created by God? In other words, how can I separate my ego from my true spirit? There's a conundrum right there. You can't really separate anything. Ego is separated from the true self already. That's why it's an ego. But I'll respond to that in a moment. Let me finish the question. How can I know that I understand that I am not what I have nor what I have done in this life, but I still can't know my spirit? And can it be done through the meditation um, or prayer-like state? And if so, what do I need to ask? I hope this question makes sense. <clears throat> yeah, it definitely makes sense. And meditation is part of it. I think there's three aspects to developing your sense of self. One is study, and that's to come to this class and others like it, uh, to read books, uh, to meet up with like-minded people, to hang out at the Bodhi Tree if you're in Los Angeles or other metaphysical bookstores, uh, to network with people and connect with like-minded people, and to share your insights. Study. Number two is any kind of meditation. All right. Um, meditation can be as simple as closing your eyes, taking a few slow, deep breaths, relaxing, and watching yourself breathe. It's probably the simplest meditation there is and one of the most effective. Simply watching the breath effortlessly. The, the, the inhalation, the pause, the exhalation, the pause, when you've turned your breathing over to autopilot and allowed yourself autonomically, automatically to find the natural rhythm or cadence for your breathing. And then with your attention fixed gently upon the very bottom of your nose, at the very point where the breath enters and leaves the body, you just watch the ebb and flow, the peaks and the valleys of your breathing. 
even if only for five or ten minutes a day. And in time, what happens is you begin to get this feeling that the body you're watching that's breathing itself all by itself feels like somebody else's body. Like you're watching somebody else over there breathing, even though it's really you. And it begs those other questions. I was talking about Eckhart Tolle a little little while ago from Power of Now, where he wakes up and says, I hate myself like this. Well, he had two more questions that came into his mind that makes that a wonderful story. He said, as he wakes up super depressed in the middle of the night, I hate myself like this. The second question was, how many of me are there? If I can hate myself, then how many of me are there? See, this is where the detachment, the mindfulness begins. And then Toll's third question, (laughs) this is where the brilliance really comes in, was, well, if there's two or more of me, maybe only one of them is real. This is life-changing. The very first chapter of The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle came out almost ten years ago. He's written other books since. This is a good one. I hate myself like this, he says, and then the questions, well, how many of me are there if I hate myself, right? How many of me are there? And the next question was, well, if there's two or more, maybe only one of them is real. So if I hate myself like this, who are you? There's another great phrase that I've used over the years to teach this from Alice in Wonderland, from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, where Alice encounters the hookah-smoking caterpillars sitting up on the mushroom, sitting on a mushroom, smoking a hookah. (laughs) Think about that. And the caterpillar says this great existential question, who are you? Well, Alice has been eating a little mushroom herself and drinking a little of whatever is in the bottle. And she got real big and she gets real small and it's all sort of uh, relative, right? And she has no idea. And she says, I don't know who I am. I've been so many people today in so many strange situations. uh, I just can't answer you. And the, the caterpillar responds rather sternly and and almost with anger and says, explain yourself. And she says, well, I can't because I am not myself, you see. One of the greatest lines in all of literature. I can't explain myself because I am not myself. The self that I'd be explaining is not who I really am. Alice doesn't know who she is. She's in Wonderland. And so are most of us. We don't know who we are. So the ego, to go to Jung's question here, the ego is the identity of the separated self. So it cannot be separated from true spirit. It already is. It's the essence of separation. 
it's the part of you that identifies for the purpose of survival. This is not all a bad thing. We've just largely outgrown the need for it. The ego is the part that identifies with the separated individual. All right? And it's what in Buddhism has to be killed, or in Western mysticism, married in the alchemical wedding or the spiritual betrothal to the higher sense of self, which is what you're calling spirit, Jung, or soul. And soul is a between spirit and the ego. It's sort of an individuated bit of spirit. It's unitive. It share, as Plato said, the soul shares the ground of God. So, or it sits at the right hand. It, it, it knows that it's part of the oneness of all things, but it's got its own point of view from that oneness. The ego is completely separated, disconnected, cast adrift, alienated, and isolated, and its only job is to be afraid. Be very, very, very afraid and to make you feel safe. But we're outgrowing that. That's what's so exciting. One of many things that's so exciting about being alive now at the beginning of the 21st century is that we're watching humanity en masse. It's just a few people right now, but it's burgeoning, it's growing. There is a groundswell of so called cultural creatives who are casting off the yoke of separation, of egotistical you-or-me, and rising to a level of awareness where they see it's really you and me. All right? In a harmonious way, if not a unitive way, we don't have to all think alike and act alike and agree on everything. That would be horrible. What would be the point of diversity and uniqueness if that were the case? Instead, what we want to do is find the middle ground between diversity and unity and stand there and say, I am all that is. I am part of the one life, but I have a unique vantage point, a unique point of view. And that higher self can manage the ego. Because there are times when you need it. Again, you get out into your car on the freeway and you're, you are separated and those cars can crash into you. <laughs> and you do need an ego in a situation like that. So it's a great question and uh, not an uncommon one either for those who find themselves on the path. Uh, let's see. Let me go through some more of these. And we'll do a visualization. Robert Fiegel in Irvine says, Aloha, excellent class as always. You pointed out that we're afraid to relax and feel safe out of fear of being vulnerable. Don't we make ourselves more vulnerable when we walk around in a state of fear and paranoid delusion and end up manifesting, you know, the law of attraction, the very thing that we're afraid of? Uh, have a magical week and... Uh, well said, Robert. You got it. That's that's uh, that's exactly the point. Um, you know, the idea that uh, there's strength in our vulnerability, that there's extraordinary power in being vulnerable, 
is one of those philosophical paradoxes that we really need to work with. There is, uh, I mentioned Taoism and Lao Tzu a few minutes ago. There is a uh, famous Taoist saying that all truth is found in paradox. That it's in paradox. Don't don't be too quick to throw in the towel when you find yourself in a in a middle position between what appear to be contradictions, because it's just an appearance of contradiction that often can be resolved by finding that middle place and doing it by being vulnerable rather than resistant. To be open, to stand receptive, to take a breath, and to let in the light, to allow in through vulnerability, if you will, the awareness that you need to see what's really going on. And uh, so let me see if I'm responding to this. We're afraid to relax and feel safe out of fear of being vulnerable. Don't we make ourselves more vulnerable when we walk around in a state of fear? Two kinds of vulnerability. To be afraid, walking around afraid of everybody, that everybody's out to get you, is a different kind of vulnerability. That's vulnerability to being attacked or hurt, like my friend who wanted to take the gun backpacking so all these wild animals wouldn't uh, attack him. In fact, he's a much greater danger in the city for the most violent creature and the most irrational animal in the world is the human being. So we're trying to protect ourselves from external danger when in fact our fear is born of confusion and being vulnerable to the confusion, taking responsibilities to be open to the light, the enlightenment, if you will. Very good, very good. Irvine uh, Robert says, In Course in Miracles, it's quoted, Nothing real can be threatened. Nothing unreal exists. Herein lies the peace of God. Yeah, another one of my favorite lines from Course in Miracles is that all fear is a nightmare. <laughs> Nothing frightening could be real. But that's so esoteric as to be uh, very challenging and very difficult for people to understand because they will point to very real danger out in the world. They just don't understand that that very real danger out into the world is an agreement, and it's unnecessary. And as human beings continue to crawl up out of the swamp and lift their heads and put their shoulders back and open up their hearts, <clears throat> this will become more and more apparent. Robert says, as I understand, only truth or love can be real, whereas ignorance or fear is unreal. I would definitely agree with that. He said, I've even said to myself that if God is all there is and God is love, then love is all there is and there truly is nothing to fear. Your thoughts? I agree. There is nothing to fear. That's what I put in my newsletter this week. The second secret, if the first secret is the law of attraction, how about the second being there is absolutely nothing to fear? Okay. Um, and you can add a rejoinder, except the appearance of things. But again, your best response to that is not to be afraid of what's frightening, but to want to understand it 
and that takes the danger out of it. Understanding is the antidote to fear, not guns or bombs or violence, a willingness to kill and torture and maim, not money or leverage or status or prestige. Understanding. Oh, I see. And since most of what's unknown that supports fear is confusion about the self, then at the heart of all understanding has to be self-awareness to educate yourself. Right? Let's go to Tucson. And Lorelai says, Aloha, Michael. Awesome class today. Thanks for teaching me how to become fearless, exactly what I need to learn right now. I have learned and grown more in the last year than I did in the four years I took in college. Peace and love to you and Doreen. Um, and thank you, Lorelai, for that. Always nice to hear from you. In Honolulu, Bert's with us today. Hello, Hawaii boy. He says, aloha, keep up the good work. Thank you, Bert. Always nice to hear from you. In Studio City, California, Sharon Kriegler says, uh, great subject, great talk. Thanks for keeping on, carrying on. Thank you, Sharon. Rosemead, Albert Garcia says, just wanted to say hi. Pray you continue to do what you do. Thank you, Albert. I appreciate the support. I don't really have a choice. I am <laughs> I am compelled to do this. It's, the, it, it's all I know. It's what's most important to me. Um, discovering who I am, my particular point of view, and then helping other people to do the same. Uh, Cerritos, Kareem says aloha, Michael. The weather is nice in Southern California. How's Hawaii? Uh, peace, Kareem. Thanks for asking. It's been a little misty and stormy in Maui today. Um, we're at 3,000 feet, and often it can be clear below us and clear above us. The volcano goes up to 10,000 feet, and we're socked in. And today's one of those days. It's beautiful. There's rainbows. It's misty and cool, uh, sort of cloudy. Let's see, what's the temperature outside? 64 degrees in uh, upcountry Maui. And out of New York City, Paula is with us today. She says, I find this quite fascinating and connected with your affirmation that at the center of all confusion or fear, and I will add at the center of all effort to use science to give us answers and make us feel safe is one self. She's right. Isn't that a bit of a conundrum? One self. <laughs> one life. The ancient Egyptians used to say one thing. She says, uh, wish you find it helpful, a Max Planck quotation. He was a famous physicist, of course. He said, science cannot solve the ultimate mystery of nature and that's because in the last analysis, we ourselves are part of that mystery that we are trying to solve. Reminds me of Einstein saying we cannot solve a problem with the same way of thinking that created the problem. And uh, Paola goes on, she says, love is what reveals this mystery of who we are and gives us what we're looking for. Yeah, love's the answer, love's the question, love, as uh, Robert said, is all there is. And the rest be one big illusion. 
All right, let's do a, I'm running late, let's do a uh, guided imagery exercise and I'll let you guys go. And I appreciate your patience and being with us today. Sometimes I just sort of lose track of time. I never could do that on the radio. Always had to watch the clock. I appreciate your willingness. As I look at the counter, very few people leave. A lot of people join us throughout. But even though this is a long 90 minutes, very few people leave. I appreciate that. And if you ever do have to leave in the middle of one of these, remember, they're all archived on my website, theagelesswisdom.com. Just remember the T-H-E and go to the W's dot the agelesswisdom.com click on home page to go inside and then web teleconference I think I'll change that to webinar but for now web teleconference click on that and they're all there replays Okay, about three minutes after I finish this program it'll be posted too Okay, and again use the send one to a friend link to forward these programs to people that you know who are really looking for them. Do the same thing at FocusedPassion.com. More on that in a minute. Let's close our eyes. Let's face our fear, gang. The fear that you're inadequate. You're no good. You're not enough. The fear that you're a defect or that somehow you were born inadequate and defective. Let's face that fear. As you get comfortable with your eyes closed and relax, uh, take a slow, deep breath or two. Consider that we're creating a group mind. All the people that are doing this exercise live. Joining a group mind of literally millions of individuals on this planet that in any given moment are sharing this altered state with us of focused attention with an open heart. From the top of your head to the soles of your feet, soften. Create a feeling of letting go as you release muscular tension, saying to yourself, I'm safe. I can relax. I can be filled with peace. And in your mind's eye, imagine a beautiful place, a nature scene, to help you feel even more safe and more relaxed. A place that looks like some beautiful, natural, outdoor environment that you actually visited once or entirely from your imagination, maybe a combination of the two. Just don't work at it or second-guess yourself. Just let it unfold. Imagine being outdoors on a beautiful, beautiful day. And you can see trees and flowers and grasses. There's warm, sunny meadows and over here cool, shady, forested places. Allowing my voice to go with you, you hear birds singing. You can see in your mind's eye butterflies 
visiting all the beautiful flowers. You can feel the peace and the contentment as if remembering how it feels for time to stand still and be rather irrelevant. As if there's no place to go, no place you'd rather be and for the next five minutes nothing else you'd rather be doing than imagining how it feels, remembering how it feels to be really safe and relaxed. Seated upon the earth as if you are a tree or a plant, grounded, plugged in. Feel yourself rooted to the earth. And slowly scan your body with your awareness. And create and sense wherever you find muscular tension a letting go feeling as if dropping that armor in response to the safety that you now feel and the vitality, the life force, the spirit that you feel naturally flowing through you, animating you, illuminating and enlightening you, filling you and radiating out into the world so that the more you let go of muscular tension, the more you release your resistance, drop your guard and lower your defenses, the more of this energy, spirit, or elan you radiate out into the world and the more you offer it up, let it go and give it away without condition. The more you receive, and thus you enhance the flow. Think of a garden hose hooked up to a faucet outside. You could stop the flow of water out of that garden hose by turning off the faucet at the house, where the hose is hooked to the house, where it hooks up to the water pipe. You can turn off the faucet there, or you can leave the faucet open. The hose is filled with water. You just turn it off at the other end of the hose, where the spray nozzle is. You can close that off. Or you can leave the spray nozzle and the faucet open and put a kink in the middle someplace and stop the flow that way. It doesn't matter where you hold on. Any holding on inhibits the flow of spirit, of life, as an energy through you. So let go. Even if only for 10 minutes at a time, 15 or 20 minutes is wonderful. But even 3 minutes, and sometimes 30 minutes or more, I'm going to call your bluff. When your mind says to you, you don't have time to meditate, you can do a one-minute meditation. 
that'll help. Three minutes is better. Ten minutes is better still. You've got the time. Actually, a little meditation each day, and you'll get that time back, and then some, just because you're so more energetic. You're much more efficient. You make fewer mistakes. You're more likely to see time-saving opportunities. That's the ego that doesn't want you to do this. It wants you to feel separated and alone so it can protect you. That's its job, to protect you in traffic, to protect you from wild animals, to protect you from the appearance of external threats. But right now we have found a safe place and a safe time to let go of the ego and the muscular tension, the anxiety and the stress held in tight muscles. Let that go. Become vulnerable and open. Lower and release your resistance. And imagine that energy flowing out. And as I said before, the more freely you emanate and offer up the feeling of vitality as if you are a radiant being radiating, emanating love and light wisdom and understanding well doesn't it make sense that the more you give the more you receive you must sow in order to reap. You must give that which you seek to receive. And so create your own peace of mind. Create your own safety. That you can then, in this contemplative place, look at what frightens you in your life. Affirm that this is not really danger, it just felt that way a few minutes ago and tends when your eyes are open and you're distracted by life tends to feel dangerous fear does it tends to feel dangerous in normal consciousness but ah, in this place of relaxation fear and anxiety and stress you see it's not dangerous it's just confusing and that all fear, then, is fear of the unknown, and that the center of all things unknown is you. Ask yourself, who am I? Consider you are less what you think of yourself than what you care about. So as valuable as thoughts may be, let go of your thoughts in the same way you let go of muscular tension and put your focus on what you care about and ask yourself am I what I care about more than what I think of myself and if so if Michael's got a point here what do I care about what's important to me and don't go after it. Don't try to figure it out. You'd be bringing the mind into play again. 
Don't slice it, dice it, and analyze it. That just creates paralysis by analysis. Instead, let that go again and again. Put your attention on your heart and feel in your body what you care about. Maybe two people love to garden, but one person cares more about flowers than vegetables, and another person cares more about vegetables than flowers. You're both gardeners, but why? What do you care about? And why do you care? Why do you care about this webinar that you come here every Sunday or listen to the replays? Why do you care? Why do you bother to use the tool on our website to forward these programs to your friends? A particular program to somebody that you know who could really benefit from hearing a particular program. Why do you care? Find your motives, but also your identity and your caring nature. And you will see that you are the love you're looking for. Not only do you have the very love you've been looking to others to provide for you, but you are that love. You are that caring that you experience when you release fear by any name, stress, anxiety, worry, doubt, nervousness, apprehension, let it all go. Release the muscular tension. Feel safe and relaxed. And remind yourself, I'm not in danger. I'm just confused. And the antidote to understand myself based less on what I think about me and more on what I care about. Be that caring, loving nature and the essence of who you really are, your identity and your motives, why you think and feel and speak and act the way you do will blossom before you and reveal itself to you. Remind yourself how easily you can repeat this exercise to practice it and do so. Practice every day, just for a few minutes. Meditation. Introspection. Contemplation. Simply relaxing and wondering with thoughts set aside, released. What do I care about? And why do I care? And soon you will come to understand more and more every day in every way that you are the one who cares. And that one becomes harmonious and eventually unitive. You are the one, the only one. Mm -hmm. Understand that, though. 
You are the capital O one. You are the one. Who cares? From a unique point of view, as long as you're informed. Now, in a moment, I'll ask you to open your eyes wide awake and alert, back in the room, refreshed and rested with a full memory of what you've done so you can repeat it and practice it. Feel the sofa or the chair, the pillow that supports you. Remember the room around you. And taking a nice, slow, deep breath, fill yourself with strength and power. Hold for a moment, and ah, as you exhale, relax, open your eyes, awake, alert, rested, refreshed, feeling fine. Back in the room with a full memory and a deep understanding of who you are why there's really nothing to fear. Hey, we're all out of time. In fact, I apologize for running over so far. We're going to go. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being here. Share this with your friends. And if you have a mind to support what supports you, go to FocusedPassion.com. There are seven programs waiting for you, premium podcasts, very high-quality programs. Steve and I do them together. Five of the seven programs waiting for you there are the Family Learning Hour, How to Learn programs. Just ask for the free stuff, and then if you'd like to contribute, you can do that and add to your collection. FocusedPassion.com, TheAgelessWisdom.com. Have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you next Sunday. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Maui, Hawaii, aloha.